Uh, hi, I'm Jacob Alexander Ferg, and I'm sitting here with Joe Bill. Uh, Joe, how is uh, how is life treating you? Hi, Jake. Well, we just finished the Seattle Improv Festival, and yeah. so life is pretty good. Yeah, this is right on the tail end of your three-hour workshop, which y- yes, my extra super double bonus add-on workshop. Yep, and which you were in. And did, w- you, did you have fun? I love. It. I've this is the second one I've taken from you, and it, both times have been really, really great. Awesome. Yeah, you uh, <laughs> you say like. As long as you get one or two things, and there's definitely... I think the thing that I got from the workshop is short form is more masculine in, in yeah. approach and long form is more feminine in approach. And I've never... I've registered within myself that when I approach the two different forms, I approach them differently. Yeah. But I haven't really had a, a like singular dichotomy, like one word dichotomy presented to me. And I think that's the most effective Oh, presentation cool. I've ever uh, experienced with that. So like that, like that alone is like uh, <laughs> worth it, worth the whole entire time. So uh, Joe, for our listeners who don't know about you, mm-hmm. uh, can you give me a, uh, a just general background of your improv history? Sure. Uh, quite uh, large. <laughs> am I doing the 30 second version, the minute version? The, I'm very aware that I talk too much. This is, this podcast is about you. So ha- however you want to okay. present it, it's, it's all up to you. It is, this September, uh, the year where I will have spent 40 years since the first time I learned improv in high school. And so to summarize 40 years uh, <laughs> is being exposed to improvisation in high school in the context of a improv and sketch comedy group. I went to Indiana University and my junior year there I auditioned for an improv group that was run by Mick Napier and was cast into that group with, over the two years, I suppose there was maybe 12, 13, 14 different people in it with a core of about six or seven of us. But five or six of us from that group over the span of a couple of years in the 80s moved up to Chicago. And those and most of those people then became part of the founders of Annoyance Theater. So in that group were McNapier, Mark Sutton, myself, Faith Soloway, who did our music. Uh, she's also, she and her sister Jill created and run Transparent. And Eric Waddell, who is kind of our, he was like our, our game show host. Uh, and he works in, Los Angeles in game show production. Another guy named Dave McNerland, who I think was more very funny, trained actor administratively, I think was a good partner for Mick. They were the two that started the group. We performed in college together. I moved up to Chicago in 1985. So I was the first one from our group to move up. And then by 88, I think everybody else had come up. I moved to Chicago to study at Second City and to study with Del Close at IO. And I was with uh, Sharna first, and then with Dell for about two, two and a half years till about till about the time that Mick arrived. Um, I was also doing stand up. I did stand up from eighty five to ninety three, and made my living at it for about five or six years, okay. while the movement of people up to annoyance came. Studied at Second City was part of the very first level five class that graduated from conservatory. With very uh, with David Pasquese, who's a dear friend and still a mentor, somebody who I I look up to, like a lot of us in Chicago, 
Uh, Bonnie Hunt was in the, that class. Getting to work with her, doing like short blackout scenes taught me uh, my strength as a straight man. That is being uh, uh, not not as funny, but how to set up funny people. And also being just like a straight white man and yeah. learning to make fun of that. The the initial annoyance opened up under the name Metroform in the late 80s and put on shows called uh, Splatter Theater, which was like a slasher film, put on stage, sort of formatted like you would do a musical only where a song would be, somebody would get murdered. Oh. And then it had the whole campy murder thing going on. And then co-ed prison sluts, I believe, also opened in our space cross currents when we were Metroform. I.O., or at that time, improv, the Improv Olympics were downstairs with Sharna and Dell. And uh, we were subleasing from a woman who was uh, running a jazz and blues club, like on off night. So it's this all sort of creative space that ended with all of us coming to the theater one day and finding all of our stuff out on the sidewalk. Oh, damn. Because she was using our rent money to run a cocaine business. <laughs> and that was the first time we, uh, we all met and got stuff into storage and went to a restaurant and cried and got drunk and then decided to open a theater. And that's really when Mick stepped up. He was always the one that sort of articulated first the tenets of like the annoyance approach. But then in terms of his sort of becoming a leader and in my mind, in the same realm with, with Del Close or Keith Johnstone, Augusta Bawal or any founders of anything, he led us all to a strapping in and, uh, raising some money that we put down in the first annoyance theater was born like I think nine, 1990 maybe. And so then through that, my time with the annoyance was pretty much from then till like 2000, 2001. I was on and off Herald teams. So I went through the natural progression of being on a Herald team, being on another Herald team, being on the Herald team and then enough and invited by Sharna to go look elsewhere for stuff. And then came back to IO just before the annoyance closed our second theater in 2000, I think it was. At that point, we were going to, the theater was going to move into more digital production. And Mark Sutton and I started doing Bass Prov, I believe, in 2001. And somewhere in that same year, there was a decision to open the theater back up. And at that point, I think I was right in my late 30s. And I just stepped aside and I wished everybody well. I loved the annoyance. I loved being a, an alum of the annoyance. But Mark and I had found this you know, two-man fishing show where we could just sit and talk for an hour and drink beer. And I went back to IO and was coaching more. I was more interested in long form. And annoyance is really using improvisation to write sketch material, write plays, write musicals. And so in the 2000s up till present day, I think Mark and I were the second duo group. The first one was Jimmy Corain and Stephanie Weir. They did a show. Oh God, why did I do this to myself? I think their show was called Heaven or something. But they did a, a two-person show and multi-scenes. Uh, Mark and I just decided we were just going to do, at that time, what we called a real-time scene, which people call mono scene now, of us just sitting in the boat. Uh, we would always play the same two characters. We would just do a different show each time. 
And right around that time also, I think within six months after us starting that, then TJ and Dave also started. So I think I, I think I was kind of in early in the modern duo improviser thing that was really just like an improvised version of all the famous kind of vaudeville and comedy duos that came before us. And then I've pretty much been at IO for the last 15 years. And uh, I am the director of all their corporate training stuff there. I get to play in shows when I'm home. Most of the last seven or eight years, I guess it's been now, um, I just, I tour uh, nationally and internationally and I play with a lot of different duo partners. And I really just enjoy the acting aspect of improvisation. Um, I tour with a woman named Jill Bernard. Have you met her before? Yes, I have. I've taken her workshop. Oh, there you go. So, yeah, so Jill Bernard and I do a show called Scram, which is three scenes that take place at the all at the same time. I was actually, I was in a college team that opened for you really? doing Scram. Uh, it was the Dead Parrot Society up at Western Washington. Oh, in Western Washington. Oh, you were in Dead Parrot Society. Yes, yeah. Yes, I was. Yeah. I was probably one of the judges that uh, elected you to be there. Oh, oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you very much. My <laughs> pleasure. Yeah, and that, as a side, the Chicago Improv Festival really began in its first couple of years at Annoyance Theater. And so I've always been in, involved in some way with that. Sometimes I guess I'm technically like I'm an artistic associate slash international hospitality and drinking (laughs) ambassador. So I've been in support of Jonathan Pitts for the 20 years he's been doing it. And this year is the 20th Chicago Improv Festival. And I am one of two people that has performed in every Chicago Improv Festival. Who's the other Jonathan Pitts? Uh, That would be Susan Messing. Oh, okay. Of course. course. Have you ever studied with her before? I have not studied with her. I've actually never met her before. Uh, You will love her and be horrified in love with her. That's what I like to hear. So, yeah. So she's great. And I, I get to play at her show once or twice a year messing with a friend. Ah. Uh, I tour a little bit with David Rizowski and we do Rizowski and Bill. I tour a little bit with Patty Stiles, who's Canadian now living in Australia. And we do a show called our play, which changes all the time and sort of highlights how simple it is for improvisers, regardless of the school you were raised in to just create theater and plays. And, um, and I tour all over the world. I teach, I direct, I, play and now i think we're up to modern times yeah now here we are at the seattle improv festival yeah um so there is a lot to unpack from just that history Uh, however i am very interested in something i'm ready to take something from the workshop that you're talking about cool uh, because i'm just i'm very intrigued about you say that you're a physics and a psychology nerd Mm -hmm. uh, and i am so fascinated with yeah, psychology definitely plays directly into improv in a way because we're just when we are pretending to be people on stage there is an inherent psychology to those people that we are pretending to be but I'm interested how can you, can you just talk to me about relating physics to improv mm-hmm. and how the the laws you mentioned the laws of thermodynamics and yeah, how that physics was, works yeah. that was actually um, so the first book that Mick wrote improvised from the scene inside out or improvise scene S-E-N-A E-N-E, from the inside out. One of my favorite improv books. So in that book, he made a run at a chapter called uh, The Scene and the Second Law of Thermodynamics. Mm. Physics was the one science that I did the best in in school anyway. And it was one that interested me because it seemed more the most practical. But Mick also loves physics. And 
when he was writing the first book, he was talking about how this chapter was going to be. And being more or less like right next to Mick as his emerging as a leader and, you know, sort of genius in our community uh, happened, I knew a lot about how he was going to represent the annoyance point of view in our approach and fuck the rules and take care of your shit and hold on to your thing and have fun and play and sort of rejecting the traditional rules. But I was really most interested in how the hell he was going to equate the second law of thermodynamics (laughs) to an improv scene, which is roughly uh, in a closed system. Energy is uh, neither created nor destroyed, only dispersed. And so he has said that he gives himself a B for that chapter (laughs) and I give him an A even though he described to me why he gave himself a B and I can't remember it but I just like admired it's like one more thing to sort of admire that he put that in there and so to this day I say I incorporate physics from how we objectively take in what's going on and I use psychology I'm more interested in more learned and psychology. So that's the subject of experience. The improv that I teach is really acting improvisation. Mm -hmm. And then I use psychology as a way to support my reading people as they are improvising. I'm fairly certain that nobody can teach anybody how to improvise. We can just teach people what is not the state of improvisation. Yeah. Uh, What is not play? What is not connection? The shit that's in their head. And there's, there's people that back at the annoyance, uh, in those days, they would say that Mark was the professor of biology. I was the professor of psychology and Mick was a professor of physics. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, or no, maybe Mark was chemistry. Uh, whatever. You were a triad. <laughs> yeah, we were, we were some type of weird triad and it's different things float through and I've gotten so old that I can't remember, but it was something like that. And, and Mick, so I think the way that, Influenced because that chapter exists in his book and also a little bit of my work with David Rizowski because he's very into viewpoints, which Mm -hmm. I don't know. know, I've trained. Yeah. yeah. So to me, viewpoints is also riddled with physics. Mm -hmm. Um, In motion and relationship. Motion, duration, shape, barrier, uh, architecture. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it's, it's those things that you notice visually and Rosowski's very, very visual. And I'm, I practically have visual Asperger's where like, I don't see, see things that I see. I don't get feeling from seeing so much. Oh. Um, I see patterns. Do you have synthes through audio? Do you see patterns or do you physically see? Yeah, patterns? I'm very auditory. Okay. I'm very auditory. And my, and my, and I'm a do like, I prefer to do stuff first and fuck it up I see. and then talk about what I just did and then see somebody else do it. So like my flavor of narcissism is <laughs> that if you've done something and you're going to show me pictures of you doing something that I haven't done, I can't relate to it. And I'm even put off by it oh, wow. because there's yeah. no, I love empathy, but I'm like an immediate touch, hug, talk yeah. person. Yeah, that's just who you are. That's it. Sure. And, and the, the example is people that go parachuting, they always want to show me their pictures from when they first went parachuting. And I've seen those pictures just with different people. Yeah. And it always, it's, 
What I'm really annoyed at is that I can't re-experience that feeling that I see in the picture. I just see the predictable, of course your face was like that. Yeah, yeah. If I'm a horrible person to take to an art museum, because when I see paintings that visual people are moved by that they call beautiful, I might see pattern or I, it, it's, it's not. It just doesn't affect me. Well, really, this is improv, but does music, would you say music affects you more? And then is, have you been involved in musical improv? Like, what, what do you think of adding the addition of music into improv? Yeah, I like, I, I do musical improv. I used to do a lot more, but now I'll play with the Deltones at IO a yeah. couple of times a year. And I'll play with, um, there's a musical Armando that I'll play in. And, um, and I was raised with music. I was in all the, you know, singing groups in high school. Mm-hmm. Music for me. I think I have a broad taste in music, but I also listen, I like hooks more than I like lyrics. So like I'm a little bit more of a Paul McCartney person than a John Lennon person, not to devalue Lennon, but the, like the John Lennon songs that impact me, it, it's, it has taken me years to like understand that Imagine is maybe the most beautiful song ever written Mm. and perfect. But I like hooks and I like, there's one thing that comes up in my life is you're either a Tom Waits person or a Leonard Cohen person, <laughs> and I'm a Tom Waits person. Okay. So music that is like sad and depressing and dark, <laughs> where the humor, there's humor in Leonard Cohen, but it's not the same type of cu- humor as Tom Waits, yeah. which is like life's terrible and miserable and I'm fucked up and uh, <laughs> yeah, look, look at what, look at what disasters we are. Beautiful, beautiful. <laughs> beautiful melody saying horrible things yeah so okay this is a perfect uh perfect moment i there is a single question that i have that is sort of the nucleus of this podcast the uh, mm-hmm. the central idea uh, is a big broad question so feel free to answer it however you wish but um mm-hmm. what is your artistic direction mm-hmm. so let me see if i can start with an all-encompassing headline and then form a thesis or two out of that. My artistic direction is based in understanding that I am an entertainer and I am a teacher. That's who I am. And I think that that question first begs the the answer to the question, who are you? In the context, like of an improv theater, you know, who are you? What what are you interested in? I think maybe for the annoyance theater, for example, the mission is using improvisation to create scripted work of different kinds, and also having some improv shows happen. But I wonder if the artistic direction of the Annoyance Theater was really guided by the one thing that Miss Mick insisted on, which was uh, you have to be a nice person. <laughs> and uh, we would get, we were also famous for a while in the 90s of being a theater that did lots of musicals with people that can't sing and don't have rhythm. <laughs> <laughs> But they're really nice people yeah. and great people. I've seen those people kill musical improv before. Yeah. They just commit fully to singing. Have you seen Jill's Drum Machine show? Uh, I missed it, actually. I was doing something else. She was in the same town as me, and I wanted to see it so bad, but I missed it. It's one of the most amazing one-person shows you can ever see. And it's Jill is not a trained singer. And 
she sings with complete heart, complete conviction, and and is that uh, you know dance like nobody's looking. She sings like nobody's looking, yeah. even though she knows she's doing a one woman show. And at times she's so soulful that in her belting out whatever the next number is, all of a sudden she appears for a few seconds or a little longer as a brilliant trained singer. And then she's not. Jill can take a big mess and look at like make it look like a beautiful, purposeful sculpture because it's she's just so heart in. Yeah. So my artistic direction is guided by me knowing that for sure I am a teacher. I am of two teachers. I'm from a, a salesman football coach and a nursery school teacher. And I'm an entertainer. And from the earliest ages, I was always entertaining for various reasons. Some to get attention, some to keep attention away from me, some to keep from getting beat up because I'm the oldest of five kids. Some because um, I would rather be entertained than bored, like a little ADD. And so my direction moves along those paths where all the uh, all also director, coach come under teacher. And they also go hand in hand with entertainer that I might even further qualify by saying empathetic entertainer because I feel like I have something where I can be in a room for a very short period of time and have a sense of where I fit in that room without being able to say in a sentence what that is. I see. So there's my thesis statement. Or there's my headline, and there's a couple of mini theses within those. Yeah, so let's uh, let, let's pick them apart. Uh, I'm really interested. Do you believe that? Uh, I, I believe that every individual has their own artistic direction, whether or not they have uh, implicitly defined it. It's just if you are engaging in any creative endeavor, there has to be some sort of artistic direction behind it. Do you believe that you can always find your artistic direction in the question, "Who am I?" Hmm. In the question or in the answer? In the, maybe in the answer. In the answer to, to the question, "Who am I?" Because it's yeah, you start putting you start putting English words or you know words to it, and the yeah, and now we're doing that doing that nerd thing where we're like dissecting the semantics and getting yeah. to, like how do you measure the art? Right? Yeah, yeah. That's, so let's nerd out. Yeah, let's nerd out. Let's do it. I I think I think that's a good place to start because I think there's a lot of people that don't know who they are and. Like for my first therapist, one of the great things I learned was this mantra, which was always remember who you are and always choose love over fear. And that was 10 years of playing with that idea. (laughs) Um, Because in the remembering who you are is one thing, but then choosing love over fear is often a process that leads you to another definition of who you are. Yeah. Which is which keeps you in therapy, which is, I guess, part of the racket. <laughs> so I would say that's as good a place as any to look. I'm also tempted to say in improv, there's a saying, uh, in improvisation, the answer to every question is it depends. Hmm. And so I'm wondering right now if that, if it depends applies. Does it depend? Yeah. And then like depends on what? But I would say if I was going to assist or coach or help someone in the direction of understanding who they were or understanding what their artistic direction 
is in, I would probably begin with some type of addressing who you are. One of the things I love most about improv is anytime anyone does anything on stage, you're sort of seeing this indirect representation of the person that they are. Uh, maybe you don't like learn anything specifically about them. Oh, we have someone coming in. Um, uh, maybe you don't. Is this uh hello? Hi. Uh, is there a class going on in here? We're just gonna drop something off. Okay, oh, perfect. Sorry, we're just, I didn't we're, know anyone was in here. No, no we're just no, doing perfect. a podcast. So perfect. <laughs> no, yeah. you're fine. Totally fine. We'll uh, we'll keep it in. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. This is uh, improv. Yeah, this is improv. Um, so I so I guess my um. I'm going to try to form this train of thought to a question uh, because you are a teacher and you're you're a very effective teacher. I, I, I will say that's you, today I was today. I both <laughs> times that I've seen I've uh, I've done workshops with you. You have a um, an uncanny ability to put into words thoughts that I personally have had about improv that do not have clearly defined words. Like for example, the masculine feminine thing. Oh. I was like that's that a. a not that I am like in desperate search of a way I must define label. this. Yeah, but it, it is nice to hear someone else express a thought that I've had. It's like in in a more concise, more uh, directed, thought over way. And that thought is, you know, part of being an improv nerd is reading it, everything and seeing some application to improv in it, and then some of it sticks more. So that thought isn't my thought, but rather um, comes from a woman named Pat Heim, who is an organizational psychologist and would speak about gender differences in the workplace and framed masculine sensibility as goal and then framed feminine sensibility as process. And I try when I can I think even Dell said that he has no original thoughts. He's just yeah. observed and learned a lot of things that he, you know, regurgitates when it seems relevant. Mm, yeah. So that's, you know, it's it's important to me to like honor where you've grabbed the snippets from. So uh, so thanks. I'm glad that hit. Yeah, yeah, it did. Um, I, I'm also like part of my brain is still working on the idea of if you create anything, you have an artistic direction. Is that what you said? Yeah, that was, I mean, that I... You have to have an artistic... Direction. I don't think... If I could see that statement being dissected to a point where I could disagree with that, but in that moment, that was what I was feeling. Uh, and that's... A, yeah, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm not quite sure if I agree with that, but right now I'll tentatively, tentatively say that I do. Yeah, it's, I can't really... I can't... Uh, I don't find... I don't have much to debate with it at this in this moment. It also reminds me that um, in a lot of the corporate training that I do, to apply improvisation to that, uh, one big chunk of what I teach is presence. Yeah, which is huge. And so there's leadership presence and personal presence, executive presence, managerial presence. What, and, and one of the things that I believe is that everybody has presence. But... The question is, is it the type of presence that is optimal for whatever you're doing? That is, are you showing up the way that you would like to show up when you show up in however, in whatever context you're showing up? Um, and so for me, the, the academic nerd curiosity is everyone definitely has presence so does that relate to if something's being created, then everybody has an artistic direction. And if the result of that creation, you couldn't really call art, would it still have been an artistic direction that led them there? I don't know if we'll solve this, but I'm... I don't, this is just a podcast. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God. 
if only I could just be a person who would speak simply about things. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> this is actually a very interesting idea because I, I am very big, it's especially recently into my life, I've been trying to enact being present, being fully in the moment, just experiencing what's around me, not trying to bog my my mind, my thoughts down with what's happened in the past or what's going to happen in the future and just being right here and now. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a very difficult process because I'm like, yes. I, I learned about it. I was like, hey, I'm pretty good at being present. And then I was like, oh, I'm not going to be. Pre-. I'm like recognizing that most of my day is spent somewhere else partially in mm-hmm. my head. So, so you're a teacher and you want people to be present. Uh, how, how do you pull this presence out or how, not, it's not even a, it's a more of a pull. It's a how do you allow people to understand that they are able to be present within a classroom setting? With it is specifically relating to improv. I think in improvisation, which is a different context than so. corporate, it's a different contract that they're showing up in your room under. I think in improvisation, because people are different while being somewhat the same, you invite people to be present and you have to do that in different ways based on the different people that are there that begins with you know today we hit real big on resistance versus acceptance Mm -hmm. so i think it starts with completely being in complete acceptance if somebody's not fully present and not resisting that yeah and and in a in a corporate context i may talk about presence a lot more in an improv context i may use presence as something is a word that we're sort of striving for but i'm probably working more micro than Mm -hmm. that and so even as i said today before the before class i'm aware i've studied psychology so that i can understand and give words and labels to things that i've sort of intuitively have been picking up on all my life and then like in studying things like adult learning and learning process, being able to observe when people are in, when people are out. And sometimes I have to do exercises that are only going to hit a third of the people that are there, but I have to, or they're going to be left. And the consequence of that is I get present signals from other people that this isn't really their thing. And if I'm in acceptance, then I can be in a state of happiness, fineness, okayness with knowing that this isn't the dish that two-thirds of these people want. But if I'm in resistance to it, then that opens up the bag of worrying about what people think of me or trying to be perfect or all of those audio files I talked about in class that remind me what a horrible person I am. (laughs) (laughs) So the answer then to your initial question is you invite them to be present in different ways. I see. Both times I've taken a class from you, you have said up front at the beginning, I don't have a plan. I'm going to make it up as I go. So like relating back to improv, but how different is every class that you teach and how do you, do you just have this tome of exercises and do you trust yourself to have the thing that is needed for the group? I do. It's, it's exactly backwards. I trust myself to have what's needed by the group. Mm-hmm. I accept that I might not today. And uh, I accept that I'm just as likely to get it right. Yeah. And so there is no worry. I'm very at home when I'm teaching. I'm very at home on stage. I'm very at home when I'm directing. I'm very at home when I'm coaching. 
and all of that equals this is my life. So this is what I do. So I'm past. I'm past taking any victory in a way that would cause me a massive celebration. I'm also past taking any failure or misstep in a way that would lead me into a, the dark pits yeah. of depression. I'm a terrible teacher, and like, why am I doing this? Yeah, that that sort of the audio files, the 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 panel of men in your brain that just tells you. Yeah, yeah. and I and I do like a lot of older improvisers. Like, I do carry that a good healthy pocket full of imposter syndrome with me (laughs) and like aging i'm going to be 55 this year and getting to the point where like holy shit i really am i'm 55 like there's people that retire at 55 (laughs) and i feel like i'm just i'm just beginning to be like one of the elders of the tribe and it's taken me from 50 to 55 to just say i can either resist whatever responsibility comes along with that or deny there's any responsibility or whatever, or I could just embrace that there's there's perception shit that comes with being somebody of this age that does this. Yeah. Uh, so you've been around, and that I'm very interested. How have you watched improv shift? Because I certainly think, at least for for my for for the younger generation, I was able to grow up going to improv theaters, and I was at a very young age. I was able to go see improv, and I was able to take structured improv classes in a town like Spokane, Washington, mm-hmm. which you know, ten years before I moved there, wouldn't have had an improv theater. Improv would have been unheard of. So, have you seen? I mean, I'm sure that you've seen some sort of tangible shift. But what what is the quality of that shift that you've seen? The first thing you notice is the quantity before the quality. Oh, yeah. And so there's just shitloads more in improvs everywhere. And the quality question is really, it's really been in my international travels, like being struck by how many people do this and how many people do this for slightly, for the same reasons and slightly different reasons, and how many nuanced differences there are in people's approach and then how their culture affects that. And so I don't really experience it. I think in a qualitative way, I experience it in like this evolutionary broadening type way. I still believe that every once in a while you see an amazing improv show and every once in a while you see a terrible improv show. And usually you see something in between 90, 95% of the time it's that, um, I also, I don't have patience. I I will often sit in a back row by a door and I can usually tell how something's going in two to four minutes and how it's going to go. I can also see the demeanor of people on stage. So I think the same percentage of people go in nervous the same percentage of people go in self-conscious, the same percentage of people go in to blow everybody away and show everybody yeah, what they've got. Uh, yeah. The same percentage of people are all the archetypical ways that improvisers might be on stage being a show. There's just more. That's it. It's, it's the expansion, the evolution, and learning all the different flavors of it while also part of what's important to me as a teacher is being able to articulate any mind of anybody that does any any improvisation anywhere and that desire keeps me in the place of being a student while I'm still a teacher oh, yeah. uh, and keeps me curious about like I can't 
I don't, I don't often take stock of the fact like I get to travel all over the world and teach improv and perform improv and sometimes play with people. I don't, I have no idea what they're, they don't speak English and I don't speak Mandarin, mm -hmm. but we we're going to do a scene together and it works while I'm speaking English and you're speaking Mandarin. That's amazing. Outstanding. It's amazing. That's, that's incredible. And that's, I don't know that I would have been able to do that. So that's one way it's changed. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I also love Mick Napier's answer to the question of, you know, have you seen uh, improv change or evolve over the years? And Mick will always say, it hasn't. People get on stage, they make shit up with or without a suggestion. Improv is exactly the same as it's always been. That's a touche. That's a, that's a bit of a touche point. Yeah, it's very Mick. It's on brand. So you're going to make, you, you've mentioned the, the tenets, I guess, the ideas of the Annoyance Theater. Um, and you were there for the the essential, the development of those tenets. What are the tenets and how did they come to be? What forces drove the Annoyance Theater to hold these ideas? I think I can only give a partial answer to this. Okay. So I think the, the soup pot that boiled that gave rise to the tenets came from the tenets that developed as we were working as a group in college that Mick just by default put himself in charge of. He, he wanted to have an improv group, so he started an improv group. It's yeah. classic Mick. Yeah. Uh, if Mick wants to do anything, he'll do it, and then he's a thousand percent in. So part of like the take care of yourself in the scene, we would always rehearse like from midnight to two in the morning, and we always endeavored to do at least a 75% new show new material show every Friday night. So what that meant was people who came to rehearsal needed to be there to rehearse because if you bullshit for 15 or 20 minutes about your day or whatever, you're fucking there till forever. And it might just be that rehearsals playing for two hours, but if it turns into three hours and none of that three hours is bullshitting around or anybody needing therapy, which sounds really unfeeling and horrible, then it's then it's there, and so I think I think a lot. I I believe a lot of the tenets of what the annoyance is founded on, sort of, were boiling there in college, and then I think Mick codified them and learned from them. When we started the annoyance, they were really just kind of helpful hints for life that also transferred to improv. Yeah. I also know he had a personal distaste for the rules, which you can see in his his first book. Absolutely. Um, spoken in no uncertain terms. And now that I am 16 or 17 years removed as an annoyance teacher, I don't know that I could tell you what the current state is. Okay. But, you know, Mark Sutton and I have both taken... We have to deal with the note, uh, hold on to your shit. Don't let go of your shit. Which now, 17 years later, seems like a horrible fucking note. Oh, really? Because it means something different. But the, but what we always fought against was, was people just continuing to do the same thing over and over without changing. I see. So they, they take it not as hold on to your shit within a scene. And then after the scene is done, that is when the shit ends for right. to hold on to your shit. You know how to do improv. I must do continue to hammer nails constantly in this fence. Yeah. I must continue to paint this fence or I'm angry to start this scene. 
And I, I and and a moment where that you can deviate out of that anger is offered to you by your scene partner, and you don't change your anger. Then there's there's people that have been through this approach, or like I didn't want to change out of my anger because <laughs> I didn't want to drop my shit. Yeah. Okay. Right. It's when a good intention note sort of goes sour because it's too overreaching. Yeah, because you're not listening. It's yeah. just it's a presentation of a, a robotic adherence to a <laughs> note that doesn't that did not intend that. Yeah. And even early on. I taught the class that led into mix class and it would always, and I would, it's like a couple of years, Mick would be like, why the fuck won't these people put a hammer, stop fucking nailing and talk to people. Why does everybody keep doing the thing they're doing? And I'm like, Mick, I try to, <laughs> I try to get, and there are times where he'd be like annoyed at me. This is like uh, mid, probably mid nineties. And then have in having to deal with that, my natural, interest in psychology led me to deal with our notes and other notes in the same way like hold on to your shit is about as useful as play to the top of your intelligence which is another bullshit yeah, yeah. but it, at in its day it had a different context and Mick I think there's another part of Mick that also goes hand in hand with his physics is I really learned the importance of context from Mick because we had this assemblage of neurotic, freaky, Island of Misfit Toys people. Improvisers. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, in that, in the 90s, it was like, oh my God, <laughs> the shit that was going on. And there's people recovering from addiction or mm -hmm. people that have suffered horrible abuse or people yeah. that couldn't. You know, they're from an uh, extreme Christian family and they couldn't express their homosexuality. Or, yeah. You know, but everything was like a safe haven. And as a consequence of that, there was lots of drugs and lots of sex and lots of uh, uh, gay, bi, pan, everything. And it was insane. It was insane. <laughs> and because a lot of that would seep into the art, Mick was like, he was like a, like the most beautiful context architect you could ever imagine because he always wanted people to be able to speak their truth, to speak their mind, to deal with subject matter that was artistic, was therapeutic, was fun, was that flew in the face of, you know, what is tasteful or not tasteful. And he was a master at contextualizing stuff. Co-ed's prison sluts start, co-ed prison sluts started because Mick wanted to do a show that his dog would be in, and somewhere at the end, a clown would wrestle a drag queen. Drag queen. <laughs> and it would probably be a musical, I think was number three. Yeah. That, and then we went through a rehearsal pr uh, process. Coed Prison Sluts was the longest running musical in Chicago history, and sure as hell, a clown wrestles a drag queen at the end of the play. Damn. <laughs> And the, the, is the dog on stage the whole time? Yeah, well, the dog's dead now. Okay, the dog's dead. Uh, yeah. uh, uh, the dog goes on and off stage, but the dog plays also a, a pivotal role in, uh, if not for what the dog does, I won't spoil it. Okay, okay. If not, if not for the dog doing what the dog does, the clown and the drag queen would never wrestle. And it just happened organically to be a causal element of that. I won't. I won't dig into that because I. If you're in Chicago, go see. Go see. Go see Coed Presses. And it. It's. I don't know that it's constantly running anymore, but they'll remount it. You know, around anniversary time. I see. I have a question. I've 
So you talked about that's you're there to rehearse. This is like going kind of back. You said a bunch of stuff. Oh, did I jump around? Sorry. No, 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 no. no. I, I'm jumping back to the cool. beginning part of the the question because there's something that I have experienced in the improv uh, in the improv theaters that I've been in, in the improv theaters that I've uh, traveled to, which is the challenge of trying to assemble a cast that is willing to and able to rehearse regularly mm -hmm. together. Mm -hmm. uh, and there are a few improv theaters that I have been part of where that is sometimes a challenge where if you start to try to put uh, restrictions on performance based on rehearsal attendance, you suddenly don't have enough people to be in the weekend shows. Mm -hmm. Do you at all have a remedy or a piece of advice for other artistic directors in theaters that are going through this right now? If you are an artistic director that is both directing the show and playing in the show, you will fail. And so you're either a director or you're an actor. Be an actor in another show, but don't play in the show that you're directing. You might make it for a while. And a lot of people that go to Chicago especially, but maybe New York or L.A. for a couple of years and then go back to Montana, go back to Iowa, go back to Louisiana, whatever to start their own theater, there's a different, well, if you're in the show, it's impossible to give notes that are objective about the show because you're subjectively in the show and absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. <laughs> and I know people that do both and they usually end up as at best people that had a noble vision that somehow carried through but at worst, who are also despised eventually because they wouldn't help develop other directors and other teachers. They also end up in a vacuum where all of a sudden they're teaching or directing for five years and they've not taken another class and they've had to figure shit out for themselves. And it's and they're not Meg Napier. <laughs> you know, one of the secrets of TJ's and Dave, TJ and Dave's book, which I've, I've glanced over, is like it's yeah. a great book, but it also helps if you're TJ and Dave. To I do that stuff. Okay, I see, I see. So that's one thing. Um, and you're talking about the context, probably of a smaller theater, like a small startup venue or something. Yeah, exactly. In like a, in a smaller town, if, say it's a, a small to mid-sized town, and they're. Uh, the only improv theater, there might be a couple indie teams and there might be a college team, but they're the only dedicated improv theater. Um, that's like, that's very, the very specific scenario where I observe that happening, I'll say. Yeah, I'm, I'm old school, so I would be tempted to stick to the rigidity of if you can't rehearse this week, you can't play this week. And discover over time what the asterisks might be. I also, in the face of that, the first thing I just said, you might have a chance to sustain for a little while if you choose a director on a rotating basis. So maybe for one month, one person is the director and they don't play. And that person is in charge of the context. That person is in charge of the approach. And they are in the role of director. And actors are not directors. And actors don't give notes. And then you change up. And that's 
I know a couple of places that have done that, and they're doing that now, and they're in the process of seeing how that works. So I'll get back to you on that. Yeah, Jet City sort of has that uh, that approach a little bit. Uh, Andrew McMaster's gives people from the community the opportunity to direct long-form shows, direct mm-hmm. stylized long-form shows. And they are in control of directions. And one of the rules, I just interviewed him yesterday, actually. One of the rules he has is if you're, the, if you're a director, uh, you are not allowed to be in the show. Mm-hmm. And this is a, I mean, I'm, I'm four episodes in, but this is an idea that I have slightly experienced, but now it's come up in every single one of the interviews mm-hmm. in some way, shape, or form. Mm-hmm. And so the, the struggle now that uh, I guess a person who would potentially be an artistic director or wants to direct is, is we come to this form to perform it. Like our most people's intention is I love doing improv. It mm-hmm. makes me happy to do it. Do you have any advice of, of the rotating director is a great idea, mm-hmm. uh, but do you have any advice further of if you're about to go into this role and you agree with this statement that you should not be a director and an actor at the same time, is there a way to let go of the need to perform or do you have any sort of answer for that? I, I, I don't. <laughs> I think if you need to perform, you need to perform. I need to perform for my own mental health. Yeah. Amongst other things. Boy, it all comes down to context again, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, as does everything. <laughs> yeah, if you if you have eight people in a small city and they all just want to perform together, and all of a sudden you find a room in a bar that has a door and a little raised platform, and you say, we're going to do a show the first Friday of every month, usually after three to five shows, there's things that need to be talked about. (laughs) Yeah. And so I just think that it's a difficult conversation to have, but it's even more difficult if you don't tend to that to deal with it. And then friendships or artistic relationships that could be great turn can turn sour. It's also worth it to know that you're probably not going to improvise with these people for more than a year or two. And it's, you know, there's the human need, like it's that human connection need where some people have just a different relationship. Like once they get hooked in, man, they don't want to see anybody go and we're just going to stay and do this. And it's like the most natural thing in the world is to move on. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it's I think my only answer for you is I just thought out loud there because I don't know that I have an answer. Yeah. It's like, my answer is don't let me stop you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's the real answer. Cause I'm, I'm happy to be wrong. And really, I think that people, a group of people that are mutually inspired, they have the chance of figuring it out. The group of people that are mutually obliged will live the consequences of that. I see. I see. And that's, and I think that having an outside director who is not involved can, who is someone who they, who the group can come to and is the directed person for that can maybe even potentially transform that mutual obligation into a mutual inspiration. But if you don't have that outside person, then I kind of, you just buzz around you do three shows. There's something that someone needs to talk about. But if we're all on a level, equal playing field, maybe someone can start to feel insulted by a, a note being given by a fellow actor, um, which is that's, you know, this goes yeah, to the Never, whole. ever give each other notes if you just perform together, period. 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 
ever. Can you elaborate have a, on that? Have a discussion. If people giving people notes, the real no no is in a declarative way, unless it's you hurt me. Yes. Yeah. Right. But any if you're if I'm in a show with you, and I ever say to you or you ever say to me anything that begins with the words you shoulda, you should have, then fuck that person. Wow. Yeah. Because uh, and and it's even as directors and Mark and I are big on this, like we will never tell anybody what you should have done in a scene. There are some that can, and there's, there are some approaches to improvisation that have a very codified list of shoulds and shouldn'ts and do's and don'ts. And that's cool. And I'm just one opinion. Yeah. But if you're, when Mark and I finish doing a show and TJ and Dave finish doing a show, when any group does a show, there are groups that have, by and large, healthy conversations and yes. by and large, healthy and hopefully productive. And then some that don't. <laughs> mm-hmm. And just because you're really good at having a healthy conversation after a show doesn't mean you're always going to be good at it. So part of it is recognizing, ah, we're just, let's, you know, let's give this a few days to breathe. And it's the other thing artistically is if you're directing a show, you're not allowed to give notes about the show that lasts longer than the show. <laughs> so if the show is a 30 minute show, you're not allowed to give notes for 30 minutes. Yeah, you can give notes for 15 minutes. And I would say anything in any notes that last longer than half the amount of time it took you to do the show is an opportunity for you to become a more concise director and understand context. Um, one of the things I've taught coaching, many coaching classes too. And jumping back to your question about do I always have a plan? Even when I don't have a plan, not having a plan is a plan. Mm-hmm. And before I came out here, I counted. I have 57 different workshops or formats that I could offer to teach somewhere. And maybe a third of them are this, the same or similar reworks of others. But yes, I do have everything in soft focus. I know what I know and I'm here now and I do that. Um, Jumping back to what we were just talking about, I'll tell people, if you're directing a show that's going to be a 30-minute show, then take a sheet of computer paper, fold it half, fold it in half, and then fold that into a quarter, and you're only allowed to take notes on a quarter sheet of paper. And for every 15, or for every 30 minutes of show, you can add another quarter sheet of paper. So if it's an hour show, then I'll fold, yeah, I'll fold a piece of paper in half, and that's the half that I that I would take notes on. That's really, that's very strategic. Yeah. It's that. That's my OCD. And that all, you know, it's, and it leads you to that. Do you ever see the movie crumb? I have not. So it's like, there's the one brother that's gone insane and he journals and he writes in really tiny block letters and mm-hmm. shit. So it's maybe that's like a sign that I'm going insane. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, you just have to fit it in. So would you say that, the solution to giving notes because it is nice to receive notes, especially when things are still fresh after a show. Would you say mm. the solution is to have an outside entity observe the show that is not in the show and then come back afterwards and give the cast as as long as it's pre? That's a on. solution okay. for sure. A solution can be I direct the show during the week and I'm still going to play this weekend, and there's not going to be notes. But there will be a beer 
where we can share thoughts that we had during the show and where we thought somebody might be going or asking where, where were you, where were you? Um, so if you're sharing your thoughts and what you felt and you're curious, you're more curious about what other people were thinking or what other people were feeling, then that can usually keep you out of the world of you should have yeah. or like prescriptions. I've definitely had some note sessions where it's strictly I feel statements. I mm -hmm. During the show, I felt this. And it's mm -hmm. like usually positive thing about yourself, negative thing about yourself. But that when you're in a group of six random people, that one of the six typically can spin that into something like a shoulda that would have happened. So that's, mm -hmm. that's an interesting idea of how do you avoid the I shoulda if you are talking about a, a show in hindsight. Yeah, when you're talking about when you're talking about feelings, it's like art. It's all subjective. Yes, yeah. So nobody's feelings are right or wrong, mm -hmm. and everybody's wired differently. And and in our you know in Seattle, you're more likely to express your feelings out here than you might be in Chicago, and in a different way. And the other thing is, we never talk about mental health in our country, and and there is no normal. And so some people are depressed, and some people are anxious, and some people are triggered into fixation and some people are triggered into they're perfectly nice people and then somebody something triggers the narcissist version of their grandfather that lives in them some people are addicted to being right instead of addicted to being happy and so like all of these dynamics go into what makes just human interaction and communication difficult in the first place but especially if we all improvise together we're vulnerable together put ourselves all out there there's going to be a lot of people feeling different stuff. And just because I had one positive feeling about a moment that you had a negative feeling about doesn't make that moment wrong. But negativity tends to bring up uh, right and wrong because that's where that's the engineer brain. That's the judgment assessment brain. That's the ego brain. That's the fear brain. And once that one of the main reasons for having somebody objective is they can speak to what I saw as opposed to what I experienced from looking at this from afar. Because if you, if there's a controversial moment in this stage, that conversation is going to want to have some type of objective assessment of it. And if both parties are really heated and on opposite sides of the coin, they will both try to be objective to it, but they can't. Yeah. And so yeah. it just turns into a clusterfuck. Is there a different dynamic between you and Mark Sutton when you do Basprov? And also, just to kind of tack on a little an amendment to that, how, how did how did the development, how did Basprov come together and form itself? I know that's, those are two kind of separate. One's I a can, history, one's a question. That's yeah, I can work that. backwards. So, okay. so The Screw Puppies was a show that we did at midnight at the Annoyance on Saturday nights. And the whole show is... It's a review-style long form, which means after every scene, the lights will go out and they'll come back up on a new scene. Scenes may be connected or not be connected. But really, the game was, there's six to 12 of us here. There's two cases of beer backstage, typically. And we will improvise for you until the beer is gone. So cool. it's, <laughs> it's a party that happens backstage <laughs> at midnight on a Saturday where we're all sort of celebrating the end of our week. And oh, by the way, we will do what we're known for, which is potty mouth, nasty, filthy, midnight, drunk humor. And we will sustain that on stage while we're having a party backstage. That's cool. 
part of that contract is everybody in the show agrees to do five to ten minutes on the lights. So we all take turns on lights. Okay. And that's so that we can fuck with each other from the light booth. <laughs> well, or support. We all, maybe we all had favorite things that yeah. other people in the cast would do. So my favorite thing might not be Ellen's favorite thing. But if I'm on lights, when that thing comes up, I'm going to let that run for yeah. maybe the whole time I'm on lights. Yeah. And meanwhile, Ellen will be pissed backstage. <laughs> and so... The two guys that ended up being Donnie and Earl and Basprov were two guys during screw puppies that would just come. We'd pull two chairs out and we'd just pretend like we're fishing and we would go really slow. And we're two guys authentically from Indiana, so we play as two Indiana guys. And there are some people that love those two guys and sometimes called it the uh, instant piss break scene because it was slower and it was like yeah, out like, of it, it was a nice spacer between you know, whatever 20 year old anarchy shit we were throwing up there. But some people also hated it. And pretty soon those guys, those two guys like by the, I think the first time they came out, I was great. And then we brought them back again. And then like three quarters of the cast was like, and then, and we noticed that and we're like, Oh, it's me (laughs) and Mark. So our similarity is like, Oh, fuck these guys. Yeah. And I think the second time we did it, it went even better. And somebody let us, maybe Eddie Furman was on the lights, but it went really well and it, and it killed. And it was maybe even like a 10 minute scene or something. And so then it was a while before we brought it back, but we brought it back a third time and somebody was on the lights that didn't like it. So these guys sat in a chair and I think we even made it got some applause by the regulars who were like, yeah. Oh, they're going to do these <laughs> guys scene. watch. And so we're just pretending to fish and we're not talking. And we probably are out there just fishing for 45 seconds in silence. And one of us looks over to the other and says a line and then the lights went out. Oh, yeah. And so, so part of it was we discovered those guys in the screw puppies. We kept doing them both because we loved it and despite our friends who were like, fuck you guys, don't do that anymore. It seems in the tone of the show in general. Yeah. And Mark and I had fished together once or twice before and subsequently over the years, you know, we we enjoyed going fishing together. And after the annoyance, the big theater on Clark closed, or maybe it was that same year, we did it for the first time. We workshopped it in a a show called Slugfest at IO as Boat Prov. We did two of those, maybe three of those. Then we put it up on the all-night stage at CIF. I believe it was 2001. And this is back when, like, yesand.com was a chat board, and, like, chat boards were all starting. And we had talked about this new show, and we had made friends online by, like, disseminating teacher stuff. And I think our show was at four in the morning or three in the morning at the, at what is now the playground. It's like a 50, 60 seat theater. And at four in the morning we had, we turned people away and like crushed it. And we thought, Oh, well this is just like our incestuous (laughs) chat board friends coming to be supportive and whatever. So pretty quickly after that, we found a festival. There was a short form festival in Memphis that was like six or eight weeks away. 
and we contacted the festival people. It's like, hey, we're doing this show. Can we have a half an hour just to come do a fishing show? Because we figured Tennessee fishing, that's cool. Yeah. And they're, you know, it's like, is it short form? Well, kind of, <laughs> we don't know. Two guys fishing. Well, okay. But I think we kind of were allowed to do that just because of the, you know, the, the support of, you know, annoyance. If, if annoyance is known for one thing about their teachers, like is we all give a shit and you'll get personal feedback from us to a person. Um, and I think when the online chatting about shit started that carried over. And so whatever the door opened, we went down to Memphis and it's like, we're in like the nine o'clock slot, I think. And there's like six short form shows before us. And then we do a half an hour of Bass Prov and like people's brains melted. Like they <laughs> never seen anything that was like standing ovation. The place went crazy and we're the only long form act in there. And then we're like, okay, we get, this is, yeah. this is a thing in doing that to the first part of your question early on. More times than not, Mark would take a more conservative point of view and I would take a more liberal point of view. However, in doing that, we discovered that naturally we were inclined to, if Mark was the conservative guy, then he would also have a liberal thing that he was adamant about. And if I was a liberal guy, there was also a conservative thing that I was adamant about. And I think that kind of came up organically. And so that was the first thing about what about Mark and what about me. And then because we had done improv in college. So when we started doing Bass Prov 2001, that means we'd been improvising together for 12, 13, 14 years. So we knew each other. We were also the telecom majors. We were also the only people that gave a shit about sports. And he was from a small town in Indiana where my dad went to work because he was an executive in a, in a company that made clutch plates and he sold to like Ford and General Motors. And my dad, whenever he would go to Tipton to, to work, he would always go to a diner to take clients or other people to work. Uh, where Mark Sutton's mom was the fucking hostess. Whoa. And we never learned that until I think we had graduated from college. That's amazing. So that was one of those, that's one of those things you can't recreate. Yeah, it's like kind of cosmic. And, and that really underscores my real answer to like the differences between me and Mark. It's like, it's kind of irrelevant because this whole thing is really weird that it just happened in the first place. I feel incredibly lucky and we're both versatile enough that if, if we did a Bass Prop show and, and somebody's told me I have to play like Mark and Mark has to play like me, we could do it yeah. seamlessly and it'd still be good. <laughs> Does that address what, like, were, were you looking for the contrast in us or, or? No, I mean, uh, like, all this stuff's great. I'm, I'm just curious about your relationship to Mark in terms of after the show. Are you comfortable with giving each other notes or is it still more about, like, talk about how you feel? Or do you even, I mean, you've been doing it for about 15 years, so maybe it's just to a point where you get off stage and you do the show and that's great job. We did another Bass Prov. I mean. Yeah, it's, 
I think it's less notes and it's more reviewing moments. Yeah, that's okay. Just like this happened, this happened, this and happened. And sometimes, because we can both just get lost, like we'll both know exactly how, how long, we'll, we'll both know where the, we'll feel where the ending is, but we're just like engaged in it. We can go after it. And, and a lot of times we walk off after Bass Pro, but we can't remember what the hell just happened because we're just in it. We're just like so engaged. And so more than half the time we're trying to remember what the fuck we said when you said that what'd you say what was that thing and we know that sometimes it takes an hour and two beers to remember yeah to get it all back but I'd say two thirds of our conversations are trying to remember what we did and then one third was I was thinking this or what were you thinking or were you thinking there and it's more like that show is like working a puzzle together and so it's like when you put that one piece down, were you looking for? It's it's that. Yeah. I so I have experienced the exact same phenomenon of being in a show where I'm like in it, and it feels great doing it. Mm-hmm. I trust everyone, and then I get uh, afterwards. It's like it just is not. It didn't happen almost. Uh, mm-hmm. Do you do you have any theories on why that phenomenon happens? Yes. I would love to hear that. It's because the tracking part of your brain that j- judges moments is right or wrong, your engineer, your measurer, that part of your left brain, which solves problems from a distance, is not engaged. So it doesn't chart because it's not present in the interaction or because it's behind the interaction or the pattern of response that we're in, then it doesn't have a recording of what that moment was because it was absent. The way you're centering your mind, your mind frame, your, I'm trying to like fig, figure out the right word for it. You're, um, because I'm engaged with you and I'm responding to how you're responding to me, I'm responding to how you're responding to me. Hmm. And, and I'm responding to what you're responding with and I'm responding and how you're responding to me. But I'm paying, I always am paying more attention to how you're behaving than what you're saying. Yeah. I hear what you're saying, but what you're really saying is in your behavior. I see. And that mind frame is the place you, you, when you live in that place, you are not, you're not in the place that tracks memories, essentially. I'm not tracking right or wrong. I'm tracking what's your motivation. That's very interesting. I'm tracking what do you want from me? Yeah. I'm tracking what do you hope to get from me? I'm tracking <laughs> what aren't you buying? Yeah. I'm tracking are you bullshitting me? I'm tracking what do you really want to say? I'm just saying, uh, I'm tracking, oh, your face just changed. Uh, yeah, yeah. Ooh, that's... And that's, now we're in curiosity and suspicion. Mm-hmm. Anything you do, any anything, it'll be, I, I am investigating from you and I am taking from you all the time. Yeah. Do you think every sort of every quality of that relationship is either curiosity or just, or suspicion? Can you break it down? I mean, that's again, putting words to intangible thoughts. Yeah. But. Those words I use as a teaching tool to after the fact to invite people. Those are two words I use to invite people to be present. I see. So they're there. Once you know how you feel, if well, step one is if we're in alignment, the way that I express my alignment with you is the, through the curiosity of more of that because I want more because th- this is where we are. Mm. If we are disaligned and you're against me, then I want to know what the fuck is going on that has you... I don't care that you fucked my girlfriend. 
I care why you fucked my girlfriend. Mm. That you fucked my girlfriend can be a short, you know, a blue show, short form proposition. But why you fucked my girlfriend can take an hour. Yeah. And the audience will be leaning forward and engaged. Hopefully. Hopefully, yeah. Fingers. You don't know. We're not doing it now. Hopefully. (laughs) I just felt the the sink. I got... I mean, this was great. Just thank yeah, you so much for doing this. You. Is there anything uh, that you want to talk about or you want to cover that you, we haven't gone over yet? Or it, is there in the context of just in, artistic vision? Yeah, or, artistic vision or artistic direction or what it means to to uh, assemble a group of people together under an artistic direction. Uh, is there any is there any brain blips that you know are bubbling around that you need to let out? I think I love going places more than ever and being put in a group of people that are then tasked with putting something on stage. That's why I love the dust up here in Seattle. And I think that it's because I've lived enough life and aged enough where whoever I'm playing with is just great. And I think age does that to you. And so my wish would be for those people, I'm just going to whitewash it and say in your 20s, the essence of improvisation is showing up with a group and no matter what a genius or a disaster is standing next to you, it's incumbent on you to deal with it. And you can do that by taking the words of my first drink, which is remember who you are and always choose love, not fear. There's the cherry on the Sunday. Yeah, there's the, there's the <laughs> bing. Well, thank you so Thanks, much Jake. for sitting down with me. It was yeah, a pleasure. Uh, do you have anything to plug? Any, if people are looking to find more of you, is there anywhere online that they can go? Ahead? How soon, uh, or at what, where are we from the release of this? Uh, this will be like uh, late March, mid-April release. Cool. So Chicago Improv Festival, I think, is at the end of March. Um, April, I might be... April, I'm tentatively going to be back in the Pacific Northwest, uh, Vancouver and Portland in the last two weeks of April. June, I will be... Most of June, I'll be in Europe end of May to end of June in Europe. So that'll be Finland, Greece, France, possibly Germany. Oh, that's so badass. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. And then I might be like Colombia, just like a, a, one, a week and a half in Colombia in the late summer. Looks like it's going to happen. And then I am for sure going to be in Dubai in November, possibly sandwiched by another trip to France and possibly a skip through Australia and then back through maybe Hawaii and the West Coast. So, oh, and my, uh, this is my Facebook teaching page, <laughs> Joe Bill Teaches! Exclamation point. Okay. That I'm endeavoring to do a better job of putting my shit up there. Yeah, perfect. Well, uh, you can catch more from me at jacobalexanderferg.com. Joe Bill, thank you so Thanks, much. Thanks, buddy. It was really, really amazing to have you. I'm glad I caught you before you went international. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, thank you also for listening, and we will have more episodes in the future. Yay.